May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Earlier uh, this year when I was at a diocesan gathering in Colorado with our bishop and other clergy, they were putting together a promotional video for the diocese. And so they asked the rectors to give an interview, kind of on the spot. They brought us all into a room and put us before a camera. It was a little bit intimidating. And they just asked us questions right off, uh, you know, on the spot without any preparation. Uh, but one of the questions was this. Why did Jesus come to this world? Why did God send his son into the world? And uh, I don't know if my answer made the cut. We shall see. But <laughs> people have been trying to answer that question throughout history. There's various answers to that. Uh, one answer is that Jesus came as a great moral teacher. Thomas Jefferson famously said that Jesus' teaching was the most sublime and benevolent code of morality that the world has ever known. Now, he cut out the supernatural stuff, but he said that Jesus' teaching was about morals and ethics, and that's why God sent him into the world. Then there's uh, some people who say that Jesus came as a social liberator. Jesus came to change the social structure, structures and to inspire social change for the oppressed and for the poor. Jesus as social liberator. Then there's a, a version that I think is gaining some currency in our culture, in our religiously diverse culture, and that is Jesus as the enlightened um, spiritual example or spiritual leader. Jesus is like a, a, a kind of a guru, and there's other gurus you can choose and pick which one you like, but Jesus will, if you, if you seek to follow him, will lead you into some sort of relationship with God or the other or whatever you want to call it. Jesus as the spiritual and enlightened leader. Well, those are kind of common answers to that question, why did Jesus come into the world? What's Jesus all about? But none of them really are what the New Testament says. They're, they're wide of the mark. And so we need to always go back to what the original source material teaches us about Jesus. And really from Jesus himself. Because we quoted from Luke 15, we read from Luke 15, this gospel passage is all about why Jesus came. He came to seek and save the lost. Luke 15 is parable after parable, culminating with the parable of the prodigal son, of God sending his son to seek and save the lost, to, to bring sinners into a right relationship with God. And we see that in our epistle reading, which is what I really want to focus on this morning, where Paul puts it very succinctly. The Apostle Paul, at this time of writing this, is an old man. Uh, he, he is looking back on his, thinking back on his own experience of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He's uh, discipled Timothy, and he's getting ready to hand over some leadership to uh, Timothy. He's instructing Timothy, his young disciple, on, on how to lead the churches, because he knows, Paul knows, at this point in his life, he's not, not much longer for, for this world. But he makes this statement in verse 15, which is something that we say every Sunday. We should have this memorized. We might as well memorize the reference, 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy 
and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 Well, if you're ever put on the spot like I was, you'll have an answer now, I hope. 1 Timothy 1.15 This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, maybe people knew this was a, a saying that was common in the early church. Maybe they sang it. Maybe it was a creed. Maybe it was part of the prayers. But this was a, a saying that it seems was common, and he's saying, Tim, uh, Paul is saying, you can take this one to the bank. Timothy, you can build your ministry around this truth that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And then he recounts, really what he's doing in this pass, passage is he's talking about his own experience of this salvation. And, and even though St. Paul was unique in terms of how God saved him, and he certainly had a unique apostolic ministry, there's a sense in which what he is saying here in 1 Timothy 12-7 through is a, a kind of a prototype for Christian conversion. I mean, I think anybody who belongs to Jesus Christ, when you're reading this passage, can kind of nod along. There's a, there's a resonance here, an echo in our hearts and minds about how Christ saved us as well. And so I just want to look at this passage together with you and ask, is that echo there in your heart and in your mind? Can you nod along with what, Timothy, or with what Paul is saying here as he writes to young Timothy? One of the things that he is very clear about is he, was, he came to the awareness that he was a, a sinner himself. And he says, the foremost, or the chief of sinners. And he recounts his past life when he was rebelling against God or running in the wrong direction. So he says in verse 13, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And that last little phrase can mean something like a violent opponent, an extremely violent opponent. Um, and so he says, that's, that's my former way of life. And you can read about in that in the, in the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostle, of course, recount how Paul was exactly that. He was an opponent and persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ and of actually Jesus Christ himself. Paul oversaw the first uh, martyrdom in the Christian church. Stephen was martyred. Stephen was stoned. And Acts 9 tells us that Paul was there overseeing that stoning of, of uh, Stephen. And then later on in, 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 in the book of Acts, it says that Paul was breathing out murderous threats against the church. And that he was throwing men and women into jail, into prison, because they were followers of Jesus Christ. And so Paul never forgot that, that this was what he was doing before he met Jesus Christ. He never forgot that, that even though he thought he was following God's will, he was going in the opposite direction. And that stuck with him, that sense that I have I've sinned against God greatly. In fact, elsewhere in his writings, he'll say something like, I am the least of the apostles. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. So he had this deep awareness that he had sinned 
greatly. And that he still struggled with sin. And so, friends, do we have that awareness as well? Probably none of us could say that we are blasphemers against God. Uh, Certainly we wouldn't say that we have been persecutors of the church or violent opponents of Christ. But can we look at ourselves and look at our lives and admit that there are places in our lives where we where we've rebelled against God in the past and maybe even now. There are dark places in our hearts where we're resisting God. In our psalm reading, which is the psalm that David pins after his great sin with Bathsheba, he's aware of his sin and he brings this sin before God and he, and he confesses that he needs to be cleansed from his iniquity. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He says, my sin is ever before me, verse 3, and I've sinned against you, O God. I've done what's evil in your sight. And then he asks once again that he would be cleansed, verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I mean, have you ever been brought to that awareness that in your life you need to be cleansed? and pardoned by the mercy and grace of God. I was reading earlier this week a a story of a young man who uh, had this awareness beginning to dawn on his conscience that he had sinned against God. And he said in one of his letters, he said, um, you know, everybody thinks so highly of me. He was a good student, a medical student, was doing all the right things. He said, my family and my friends, they all think that, that I, I, I'm so great and, and respectable. And on the outside, he said, I look good. And they only see what's good in me, but they don't see what's inside of me. And only God and, and, and I know about those dark and hidden recesses of the soul, he says, where all that is devilish reigns supreme. They are ignorant of the dark and hidden recesses of my soul, he says, where all that is devilish reigns supreme. Only God and I know about it. You see, you can be, you don't have to be Paul the persecutor and the blasphemer, you can be a respectable sinner. (laughs) And And the culture around you will think, oh, this person is just great. But inside there's this dark recess of the soul. Selfishness and jealousy and pride and envy and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and on and on and on and deeper and deeper it can go. But the good news is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Respectable sinners. Man looks on the outward appearance. God sees the heart. And so what Paul does here is he admits his sin. He admits the the, the sins of his past. But you know, he's not doing this to just wallow in guilt over his past. No, what Paul is really getting at is that, yes, I have been a great sinner, but God's grace has been greater. You know that old song? Grace that is greater than all my sin. All my sin put together, God's grace is greater. And so this is what he's doing here. He's celebrating the grace of God that broke into his life 
and turned him around. He writes about experiencing God's mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. He says, I received mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And I don't think he means by that that the reason, the ultimate reason God showed me mercy is that I didn't know what I was doing. I, I think the ultimate reason that God shows mercy to people, whether they act in ignorance or not, is because he's merciful. That's the real reason why God shows mercy, simply because of his character. He's merciful. He wants to bring sinners to repentance. But he is saying, Paul is saying, in my situation, I didn't willfully reject Christ. There were other religious leaders of his day that willfully rejected Christ. They closed their, their, their eyes to what they saw Christ doing. They closed their ears to his teaching, and they willfully rejected Christ. And so they didn't receive mercy because their hearts was hardened, were hardened towards God. But Paul says, that, that wasn't my case. I, I sinned, but it wasn't willful. But in any case, whether it's out of ignorance or whether it's willful sin, when God redeems a person, it's an act of mercy. Because God doesn't owe anybody His mercy. But His heart is to show mercy. And so Paul says, God showed me mercy. And then he goes on and says, God gave me grace. And I love the image here. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ overflowed for me like a fountain, inexhaustible goodness and refreshment came from the throne of God's grace towards me, this great sinner. You know, some definitions of mercy and grace, maybe you've heard these before, kind of common definitions. They don't say everything, but they're, you can kind of hang your hat on these. But mercy is, is, is not getting what I deserve. And grace is getting what I don't deserve. Mercy is the debt collector calling up and saying, we know you owe a debt, but we're not going to make you pay. You owe us, but you don't have to pay. That's good news. Grace is the debt collector calling you and saying, not only do you not owe us, we've wiped the account entirely clean and we've put a couple million dollars in your bank. That's the great news of God's grace. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ if we belong to Him. Not only has the sacrifice of Christ for our sin meant that we're shielded from the judgment of God and the penalty of our sin, which is to be separated from God, but not only has that happened, God has poured out His love and mercy on those who receive His Son and gives us eternal life. And brings us into this relationship. He goes on and talks about the kind of quality of relationship that he has now with God through Jesus Christ. He says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So I've received mercy, I've received grace, and now I'm brought into this relationship of faith, of trusting this God, who I once was rebelling against, and I experienced the love of God in Jesus Christ. So just an abundance, an overflow of God's blessing in his life that he's received. Now again, I think any Christian reading this can nod along. And we can look back on our life and we can say, there but for the grace of God. I would have continued on a path. I would have continued on a path of self-centeredness. I would have continued on a path of greedy lust. But this God who I was rejecting... This God that I was running from, 
or this God that I had sort of twisted into my own uh, idol of imagining because I didn't like the God revealed in, in the Scripture, this same God had mercy and grace on me. And the hound of heaven kept after me. And therefore, I give him praise and glory. I can look back on my life and see times where I was running from God, but his mercy intervened. And he brought me to repentance and trust and faith and love in Jesus. Can you say that this morning? Well, where does that lead Paul? Well, it leads him to praise God. It leads him to this place of of an expression of gratitude for Jesus Christ and glory to God the Father. Look at verses 16 through 17. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost or the, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who, are, who were to believe in him for eternal life. I received mercy that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Have you ever thought about that in your life, how patient Christ has been with you? And once again, how you've wandered and wandered away, but, but Christ stuck with you, and Christ kept after you. Well, Paul had that experience, and he gives thanks to God for that. And then this leads him into this beautiful uh, doxology of, of God the Father. Listen to this again, this description of who God is, the King of the ages, immortal and invisible, the only God, this God, the King of the ages, extended His mercy and grace to me, he's saying. And I, Paul, again, is an old man looking back on his life, looking back on his ministry, and, and he's just astonished that this God had this kind of grace and mercy in his life. And that led him to express gratitude. You know, when you receive a gift, what's the appropriate thing to do? Thank you. And then there are some gifts that you receive that, that are so good and so touching that you want to pay that giver back. You're the recipient of a great gift and you want to pay them back. Uh, there was a cartoon in the New Yorker some years ago and the two couples were sitting or standing in a foyer of a, of a house, a foyer of a front door, and one couple had been the dinner guest of another. And so this one couple that had been the dinner guest said, we're not really into paying back with dinners. And they're reaching into their pocket and saying, how about $80? How about $80 for, uh, for, for a reasonably pleasant evening? I don't think they probably got that invitation back again. But there's this instinct within us when we've received a gift to want to give, give back. How do we pay back God? We can't really pay him back. We can't match his gift. We, we, we can't give God something that he needs. But we can give him praise. We can give him thanks. We can express gratitude. And it is good and right and a joyful thing. Right. It's right to give him thanks and praise always and everywhere. Faith and gratitude, somebody said, are two sides of the same coin. Faith and gratitude. You give, you give thanks to God for what He's given to you. You come to Him in faith because you, you understand, I, I need what you have, God. And then you express gratitude because you received what you need, which is cleansing pardon for sin.
And so, brothers and sisters, uh, today, remember why Christ came and why Christ came for you. Maybe there's somebody here who's like that young man I talked about earlier who was a respectable sinner. (laughs) He said, everybody on the outside thinks that I'm all together, but on the inside there are things about me that I know that are not pleasing to God. Maybe today is, is your day to know for sure that you're right with God. The day is September the 11th. Fifteen years ago, we all remember what happened on that day. We'll never forget it. And tragically, we were reminded of the uncertainty of this life. And how in an instant, those people who went into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon that lost their life that day had no idea what was going to happen to them. But just like this, they were ushered into eternity. Paul in this passage of Scripture says that I received the mercy of God as the foremost through Jesus Christ, His perfect patience, as an example to those who are to believe in Him for what? Eternal life. And this is why Christ Jesus came into the world. To give us eternal life now and forever. That's what eternal means. Life with God. So maybe there's somebody here who needs to know that they've made peace with God through Jesus Christ today. And assurance of that can be theirs today. We can all join this course of praise that St. Paul is talking about here at the end of this passage. This is our mission as a church to join with Jesus in this mission of announcing the good news to sinners. So, as a church, our focus needs to be aligned with Jesus' focus. Churches can go in all sorts of different directions. And there's all sorts of good things that churches can be involved in. But those good things are not the center. The center is this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God wanting to reconcile people to himself through Jesus Christ. And the good works that churches perform all flow from the gospel. They're not the gospel, they're effects of the gospel. And so we have to keep on target that this is why Christ came into the world and this is what we're about. Well, let's let's pray. Christ came into this world to save sinners. Let's pray. Well, once again, maybe there is somebody here who isn't, isn't sure, isn't, doesn't know for sure, or have the certainty of eternal life with God. And if that's you today, I would invite you to pray a prayer of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, in, um, the, on the back of our bulletins, you can take that out now if you'd like, and look at the last page. On page 29, we have a couple of prayers. And here's a prayer of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to pray this now, and you can pray along with me, or take this home and and pray about this on your own time. But I want people to, to know that they have eternal life in Jesus Christ. The prayer goes like this, Lord Jesus Christ, I confess my faults, shortcomings, sins, and rebellious acts, and I ask you to forgive me. I embrace you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for your atoning death on the cross in obedience to your Father's will to put away my sins. I enthroned you, Lord Jesus, to be in charge of every part of my life. And I ask you to indwell 
and empower me with your Holy Spirit so that I may live as your faithful follower from now on. Those are not magic words, but if you pray that with a sincere heart, the Lord Jesus will forgive you of your sins and empower you to live for him now and forever. Gracious God, we thank you for the truth that you came into this world to save those who are far from you. Many of us here can testify to your abundant grace, your overflowing grace in our life. And that leads us to want to do what the Apostle Paul did. Live our life as an example of your grace and give you praise and glory. It's in your name we pray, Lord God. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.